What's the world record for the longest celebration? I'm serious. Coming up on today's broadcast, we're going to relive the longest celebration on record. What did they do at this gathering, and exactly how long did it last? Find out as you join us now for The Land and the Book. We're going to update you on all the major stories from the Middle East and answer questions that might be uh, percolating in your own mind. All that and more on The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. Good to be with you, Charlie. Looking forward to today's broadcast. Uh, John, it's great being back with you again. All right, let's take a look at the current events that we're focusing on this week. Uh, This coming Monday evening is the start of Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of year 5782. That's on the Hebrew calendar. It's also a Sabbath year. In Hebrew, a Shemitah year, when the Bible says the land is to lie fallow. So does Israel follow that uh, biblical command today? Well, they do, sort of. Just like the seventh day was to be a day of rest for the people, the seventh year, the Sabbath year or Shemitah year, was to be a year of rest for the land. The command for the Sabbath year was given by God actually several places in Exodus 23, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 15. Shemitah is the Hebrew word for release or remission, and it's actually used to describe the Sabbath year in Deuteronomy 15. Now, back to what happens today. Technically, the Sabbath year still applies to the land owned by Jews in Israel if they want their produce to be certified kosher. But rabbinic interpretation has softened the requirement somewhat. For example, the command doesn't apply to land Jews might own outside of Israel, and it doesn't apply to land in Israel not owned by Jews. In fact, one rabbinic interpretation allows Jews to symbolically, quote, sell their land to non-Jews for that one year, so they can continue to work it. Another solution in terms of providing food for the people is for Israel to purchase produce from neighboring Arab populations for the year. In fact, Israel and Jordan recently signed an agricultural agreement for the Shemitah year, allowing Israel to import Jordanian produce, including fruits and vegetables. This also takes advantage of the trade agreement between the two countries. So the law is still on the books, John, though Mm -hmm. there are ways to get around it. Well, last week, Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett met with President Biden in Washington. How significant was this meeting? I know it uh, was eclipsed by other world affairs, but what details have emerged regarding the topics that were discussed? Yeah, and indeed, it was to be a whirlwind, 48-hour trip for Prime Minister Bennett, but the bombing in Afghanistan postponed the meeting and actually forced Bennett to remain in Washington through Saturday. And of course, depending on who's speaking, The meeting itself was a wonderful success or a dismal (laughs) failure. Prime Minister Bennett pledged that he would not wage a public campaign against a possible American return to the nuclear accord with Iran, even though he personally opposes such a move. And President Biden pledged to Bennett America's unwavering commitment to Israel's security, saying the U.S. will never allow Iran to obtain nuclear weapons. Bennett shared with Biden why he believes the U.S. must remain engaged in the Middle East, and he talked about having a plan B for dealing with Iran should the nuclear talks fail. He also shared why Israel believes it must remain strong militarily because of the many enemies it faces in the region. Now, following the meeting, opponents accused Bennett of caving in to U.S. pressure and accepting an empty promise of protection rather than publicly stating that Israel will never ask for permission to defend itself from Iranian attempts to secure nuclear weapons. It remains to be seen what will happen in terms of addressing the threat from Iran. It's unclear if this was an actual part of the meeting, but 
Since then, Israel has taken several actions to strengthen Palestinian Authority President Abbas. Hmm. Defense Minister Gantz met with Abbas and then later announced plans to legalize thousands of undocumented Palestinians. He also said Israel would extend a 500 million shekel loan to the Palestinian Authority. It looks as if Israel is trying to improve ties with the Palestinian Authority to help shore up Abbas's grip on power and to keep the influence of Hamas from growing in the West Bank. Israel also wants to keep pressure on Iran to return to the nuclear agreement with their somewhat vague announcement about having a plan B. But otherwise, it looks as if Prime Minister Bennett came away promising Washington that Israel will be a team player. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. For decades, a student of the Middle East. He's traveled there more than 100 times. I'm John Geiger, and I'm a student like you are, learning, listening, glad to be on board. We're looking at current events, stories that have been unfolding in the Middle East. A top Israeli archaeologist has sparked a rather heated debate by suggesting that David and Solomon did rule over a major empire, but that it was a nomadic monarchy. What exactly is he suggesting, and how well has his proposal been received? Yeah, this archaeologist is suggesting there was an Israeli monarchy ruled by David and Solomon, but that the kings ruled more like chieftains over a large territory populated by different nomadic clans, leaving few material remains behind. Now, in terms of the response, let's just say his proposal hasn't received rave reviews. Hmm. Those on the liberal end of the spectrum have charged him with upending decades of critical scholarship and archaeology by trying to bring what they see as mythical figures to life. Those of us on the conservative end of the spectrum obviously accept the historicity of David and Solomon, but we can't accept his thesis that they were little more than nomadic chieftains ruling over clans. Uh, The problem, as I see it, is that he's still ignoring key biblical evidence. For example, 2 Samuel 5 says David captured Jebus, which he renamed Jerusalem, and built a palace there for himself. 1 Kings 9.15 lists Solomon's building projects, which include the temple, Solomon's palace, a new wall in Jerusalem, and fortifications at Hatzor and Megiddo and Gezer to guard these strategic cities that straddled the international highway. Now, his proposal also seems to downplay archaeological evidence, like the discovery of the fortified city at Kirbet Kayafa in the Ela Valley that dates to the time of David, or the Proto-Aeolic Column Capital discovered in the city of Jerusalem, which suggests major building projects were underway in Jerusalem at the time of David and Solomon. Now, it's true that the further back in time we go, the less physical evidence we uncover archaeologically. But this doesn't mean the kingdom didn't exist. It just means that when a site was destroyed, people tore down the ruins and rebuilt. They wiped out the evidence from the past as they continued to rebuild. We also need to remember that only a small fraction of archaeological sites have been excavated at all. And only a small area within those sites that have been excavated have actually been uncovered. My advice is to stick with what the Bible says. Given enough time, archaeology eventually seems to uncover information that keeps proving the Bible was right all along. And that's rather reassuring. 2,000-year-old dates for sale. Get them while they're fresh. I guess that could be the wording on a sign at a kibbutz in southern Israel. Help us understand, Charlie, the rest of the story. 
Yeah, it, it's not actually the wording on a billboard, but it would certainly be a catching way to introduce what has to be the most unusual crop of dates ever put on sale in all of Israel. Kibbutz Keturah is located in the Arava, south of the Dead Sea, about 25 miles from a lot. The Arava Institute for Environmental Studies is located at this kibbutz. Back in 2005, the researchers there planted a date palm seed found in the excavations at Masada. The seed sprouted and, and they named that plant Methuselah. Well, over the next several years, they decided to replicate the experiment with 32 other seeds from other excavated areas. Six of those seeds eventually germinated. And while Methuselah was found to be a male plant, several of the others turned out to be female, which allowed pollination. Last year, one of the trees bore its first small crop of dates. This year, the production increased and some of the dates are being sold to visitors. So the dates themselves aren't 2,000 years old, but they're from trees that have been grown from 2,000-year-old seeds. What makes these dates so special is that Judean date palm trees were extinct. The date palms growing in Israel today were brought in from Iraq. So these dates are from a species of date palm that had vanished. And writers in the past had praised the Judean date palms for their special qualities. So what do these dates taste like? Well, according to those who tried them, they present a very sweet taste, similar to that of honey. Hmm. Now, I suspect this year's crop is sold out. But if you're heading to Israel sometime in the future and find yourself on the way to Elat, stop off at Kibbutz Keturah to see these 2,000-year-old trees. And if your timing is right, you might be able to sample one of these unique dates for yourself. Charlie, anything about the price on those? I'm guessing it's uh, pretty sky high. I have a feeling it is. They didn't bother to put that in. It's one of those, if you have to ask, you can't afford it. Okay. Charlie, looking forward to your devotional today about the world's longest celebration. Yeah, you know, as we head into the fall festivals in Israel, uh, we're going to be looking at a three-part series, The Longest Celebration on Record of the Fall Festivals, and it's a time that uh, might surprise you. All right, and before that, of course, we've got uh, a conversation just ahead, fascinating look at uh, tour groups in Israel, stories behind the curtain, if you will, as we uh, meet with Abby Spencer of Morningstar Tours. Hey, if it's been a while since you've written to us, we'd love to connect with you, hear how the program is making a difference in your life. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Thanks for sharing with us your story. Abby Spencer next on The Land and the Book. It's one thing to travel to Israel as a tourist. It's a whole different ball game to set up a tour. Booking hotels, bus drivers, guides, managing flight schedules and budgets. You do that long enough and you collect lots of wisdom and more than a few interesting stories. We're going to share some of both in our segment coming up. I'm John Geiger saying thanks for hanging out with us here at The Land and the Book. Let's focus for just a moment, though, on creative ways that we can share the love of our Messiah with our Jewish relatives and neighbors and friends. As believers, we claim Yeshua is visible in the pages of the Old Testament. What's one example that we could share quickly with a a Jewish friend as we're trying to share Yeshua? Let's ask Michael Rydelnik, who is the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. In Zechariah 9.9, it describes how the Messiah will come. And now my Jewish friends will say to me often that Messiah is 
if we actually believe in Messiah, he's going to come on a white horse. He's going to come and uh, be a great, powerful military leader. And then Zechariah 9.9 doesn't say that at all. It says in Zechariah 9.9 that he's going to come lowly and riding upon a donkey, even the foal of a donkey. And that's just not the image we have. Now, rabbinic literature recognizes that. They said if Israel's unworthy, he'll come on a donkey. If Israel is worthy, he'll come on a white horse. Mm. That's not the case. The way the scriptures teach it is in his first appearance, he comes humble, lowly, riding upon a donkey, as he did on Palm Sunday. And then he's announced to Israel. But when he returns, he will come on that stallion, returning, leading uh, mm. armies of heaven to deliver Israel. So uh, Zechariah 9.9 is a passage that I like to point to, to say, look, he came to us humbly first as our Redeemer, as our Savior. Great tool for sharing with your Jewish friend. Thank you. That's Dr. Michael Rydelnik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute on the land and the book. Abby Spencer has taught kindergarten, second grade, and fourth grade, not to mention Sunday school on many grade levels. She's been involved in discipleship, leadership, short-term missions projects, and more. Today, she serves as director of tour management for Dallas-based Morningstar Tours. I should also add that Abby's a proud graduate of the Moody Bible Institute, and we're certainly proud of her. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book, Abby. Thank you, John. It's such an honor to be with you guys. So let me ask, what exactly does a director of tour management do? You know, that's a that's a fun question. Some people think that we are directors and managers of music, bands, <laughs> artists. Um, that's not exactly what we do. <laughs> a different type of tour managing. But our team provides, we hope, outstanding customer care for people that are interested in traveling to places of biblical significance. And I have the honor and pleasure of heading up that incredible team of people as we care for those that are excited about traveling and digging into Scripture while they do it. Hey, can you point to a time when you realized that you had a personal passion for traveling to the Holy Land and helping others travel there? Or has, has this uh, travel thing always been a thing for you? You know, I was the student as a 13-year-old that came to my parents and asked, if I could go on a mission trip, because I just had that tug in my heart to learn more about Jesus cross-culturally, to see others know Him more, and kind of caught the travel bug at that moment. And then later in high school, went to Israel for the first time with my church, as many people do, and fell in love with the land, its people, the culture, um, gained a deeper and more robust understanding and picture of Scripture, and really just connected with that idea of seeing other people gain that same picture, beauty, fascination, deeper love of yeah. Jesus. And coming back, I wanted to go back immediately, as many people do. Mm -hmm. They catch that vision for being in Israel and wanting to go back. There's so much, as you know, to see and do and learn. I did actually work for Morningstar in high school after that first trip <laughs> and was the high school student stuffing envelopes and making mail runs and really was excited for the names I would see on these lists or name tags and what they would experience as they got to go. Yeah. So it started early. <laughs> 
Well, today on The Land and the Book, we're talking with Abby Spencer, director of tour management for Dallas-based Morning Star Tours. No, not rock and roll shows. It's, uh, it's travels to the Holy <laughs> Land that she manages. Let me ask, how do you know as a tour director, director of tour management, that you've done a good job? What's the metric, Abby? I think one, one piece of that is hearing people's stories when they come back about a place or a message that they heard that really impacted them while they were there. And when folks, I'm sure as you guys hear from people as they listen to your show, give you feedback and share what it meant to them, that is such an encouragement and and shot in the arm of why we do what we do and seeing people's lives really changed and hopefully falling more in love with the Lord and with His Word. And if we can play a small part in facilitating an experience that allows for that to happen, I mean, there's nothing greater than that. Well, we're, we're here in the uh, profound side of things, but I bet there are occasional <laughs> humorous moments along the way. I bet you've encountered some stories, some scenarios that kind of made you chuckle. Share a few of those. You know, there's so many that come to mind. Um, I've had folks come back asking for recipes from hotel buffets that they've wanted, that they fall in love with. That one's a little trickier to navigate because I don't know exactly what they ate or what they want. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the classic St. Peter's fish lunch, the reactions that people have to having the entire fish served to them makes for a great photo op. But some folks are a little uncomfortable seeing that fish <laughs> looking at them while they dig in. I did have one leader of a trip at a point who every time we got on the bus, he immediately fell asleep. And he was the pastor of the bus I was sitting on. And at one point, the Israeli guide leaned over and he said, I'm not sure that he's really seeing any of Israel. He's kind of sleeping his way through the country. <laughs> but every group sort of has their own flavor and inside jokes that become just a part of their experience that are fun to look back on. Yeah. So about this guy that, that fell asleep, uh, how was that dealt with? You just kind of just... Uh... Let him sleep, or did they kind of nudge him now and then? Uh, what, what, what was the story there? We really did just let him sleep. He would wake up as soon as we would stop at the next site and be like, okay, guys, let's go, um, <laughs> as though nothing had ever happened. I will say he was a missions pastor, and I wondered if his typical role on a mission trip was, once you're in the bus, that's your chance to catch up on some rest before we get to the next stop. Yeah. But, well, you bring up a, a good point. In the end, this is a people business. And as well-intentioned as your guests are, uh, as enthusiastic as the travelers are, we do bring with us our foibles, our sin natures. And that is an interesting dynamic when there are 40-plus of you on a little bus for a couple of weeks in the Holy Land. It is tricky at times hearing folks, you know, struggling. I always think about how would I want to be treated in the situation? And what do I not know about what's happening? So did they just get an update from home and somebody's not feeling well? Or maybe they didn't sleep last night. Jet lag is very real, as you know, and that can impact people's perceptions or moods. So just trying to stay calm and hear people and extend compassion and comfort and solutions when it's appropriate and available and an option for them. Yeah. How many times have you traveled to the Holy Land, Abby? 
you know, last March, I was there during Israel's closing during a pandemic, which was an interesting time, but that was trip number 17. Mm. So number 18 is on the books for September, and I cannot wait to get back. <laughs> well, you know, your last comment there is is uh, trying to answer my next question. Listeners want to know, does it ever grow old? It doesn't, John. I know you've been there several times, too, and there's something about landing in Israel I often will text a few of my friends as soon as I land, and their immediate response is, welcome home. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful to go back. And I tell folks, you know, as we grow, hopefully, in our walk with the Lord and know His Word more, when we return to Israel, we're not always the same person we were on the previous trip. So there's something new to learn and to know and grow from that is really beautiful. Share about a spiritual kind of an aha moment that you have had personally in Israel, maybe a Bible passage that is now seen differently. In 2018, I was on a tour with just women. So it was a focus on women in Scripture and how that connected. And it was a beautiful time. But I remember sitting in Capernaum and we read through Mark chapter 5 repeatedly, which is the bleeding woman seeking healing from Jesus. And as we sat there and just had this beautiful guided time of prayer, and then a subsequent time of sharing from the ladies in the group, it was one of the most profound moments I think of my life mm-hmm. and something I won't forget. Sitting in the place where she is desperate for healing and hearing other women share their stories and where they were seeking Jesus to meet them. Hmm. Incredible. What kind of challenges do people maybe underestimate when it comes to setting up an Israel tour? I mean, I think of, you know, something as practical as traffic. Jerusalem traffic can severely alter travel plans if it's (laughs) intense enough. It certainly can. I mean, I think the thing folks underestimate is details, details, details. There are a million things that can happen, and best laid plans do not always come together as we hope. (laughs) So it can be things like traffic in Jerusalem or a bike race around the Sea of Galilee where they start closing roads, Um, a rainstorm that then closes the roads to the Dead Sea area. So flexibility is key for folks, but I think people would be surprised at how many things are running behind the scenes to try to keep everything moving as smoothly as possible, where they have no idea if there is a bump in the road because there's a plan in place and a default if we need to be flexible and make some adjustments. Yeah. I've noticed that despite Israel being a huge innovator in technology, we talk about it all the time here on The Land and the Book, The uh, hotel internet speeds are typically atrocious. Sorry, that's the truth. Why is that? (laughs) Some of it, I think, is folks all return to the hotels at the same time. They're on a public domain where anyone can hop on and slow that puppy down, which is unfortunate for people that are trying to connect. Thankfully, you know, I've seen this over the eight years I've been working here, but the ability and affordability of international data plans is a pretty great thing if you need that. Yeah. So if the internet seeds aren't working for you, maybe that, that international yeah. phone plan will help pick up some of that slack. <laughs> hey, share a story that says, this is why I do what I do at Morningstar Tours. Man, I think about a traveler who goes to Israel and comes back saying, I finally understand who Jesus is and that I need him. 
I mean, that just will move you to tears. And I think a lot of people make an assumption that those who go are all followers of Jesus. Yes. And that is certainly, you know, a high percentage of those, but not all. And for them to encounter the saving Jesus in the land where he walked, I mean, it's just incredible. Or a husband and wife who talk about the way that they connected spiritually with one another for the first time in their marriage and what that has done for them moving forward. Um, A couple of years ago, just connecting with a lady who shared how she really developed for the first time deep and lasting friendships with other people in her group Mm -hmm. that were more than just the surface, but really dug deep. Because that little bus that you travel on for those 10, 12 days becomes almost like a micro family. Yes. You share in this incredibly profound and deep spiritual experience, cultural experience. You know, I mentioned earlier some of those inside jokes, and these people become so dear to you. Mm. Um, my very first trip to Israel, myself and my sister and another girl from our youth group, we were the youngest on our trip, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old. And the oldest folks in our group were from our church who were in their 70s. And so there was this whole beautiful picture of sort of this entirety of the family of Jesus in terms of age demographic. And I never saw those people the same way at church again, because we had shared something so beautiful. Um, and they had become so dear to us. And I think about that when I hear those stories from others who say, our little group, we met each other in Israel, and now we've started a small group, and we do Bible study every week, and we've been doing it for five or six years. Those are things we don't plan for, and we can't manufacture, but the moving of the Holy Spirit works in them to do something longer than a 10 or 12 day trip to Israel. Wow, those are great stories, and you've painted some wonderful pictures for us. I feel like we've kind of had the curtains pulled back as we've talked today with Abby Spencer, who's Director of Tour Management for Morningstar Tours. A link to their website is at ours, thelandandthebook.org. Abby, thanks for those stories. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Such an honor to be with y'all. And stick around for questions. Yours may be one of them here on The Land and the Book. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager asking for a favor. If you like what you're hearing, I bet you've got friends who would too. Why not let them know about this program or podcast, however you're listening to us. Thanks for passing the good word along. Well, Charlie Dyer, what are we about to do on this next segment? Uh, Well, we're about to have some fun. Uh, People have questions, and I love hearing people's questions. I'll try and answer them the best way I can, but... Uh, If people want to know more about the Bible, the Middle East, uh, this is a great place to find it. Okay, and we'll start with a question from Caroline. She emailed us to say, with the pandemic and the evacuation of Afghanistan and the potential fighting between the Palestinians and Israelis, not to mention, you know, Muslim relationships, is this a safe time to go to Israel? Yeah, and I need to answer two ways. Uh, First, I like what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 10 and 11, where he focuses on how we're to live with uncertainty and risk in life. Living wisely involves recognizing that all of life has, at least from a human perspective, that element of uncertainty and risk. The secret's not to become paralyzed by fear, but to remain adventurous, though doing so wisely and while staying prepared. Now, 
To the second part of my answer, this is going to focus directly on the question. The situation in Afghanistan really doesn't relate to Israel because Afghanistan is far to the east of Israel. Israel's more concerned about Hamas, Hezbollah, Syria, and Iran, which are a lot closer than Afghanistan. Now, there are places in Israel that are less safe, but the average tour never visits those areas. The tour operators, the guides, the drivers, even the shopkeepers know the situation on the ground and they make their living from tourists and they do everything possible to keep tourists safe. So you'll continue to come and spend your money. Now, the pandemic, well, that's a different issue entirely. COVID has impacted the world. My own mom died of COVID and a number of friends and acquaintances have as well. But in some ways, being with a group in Israel is safer than being at home. Everyone traveling to Israel has been vaccinated. Uh, they also need to take a PCR test before going. Everyone on the plane is wearing a mask. After landing in Israel, everyone's required to take another PCR test and a serological test to verify they're virus-free. And then the group stays together in its own little travel bubble throughout the trip. They ride together on the same bus, stay together in the same hotel, eat dinner together in the same restaurant, visit the sites together. So an individual traveling to Israel as part of a group is actually less likely to get infected than someone here in the States who's just out shopping or dining. Now, is there a risk of infection? Yes, there is. But the restrictions imposed on travelers are similar to the wise precautions described by Solomon in Ecclesiastes that help guarantee success. Elsie writes, one question that has been on my mind for quite some time is from the story of the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. Jesus revealed himself to her in John 4.26 as the promised Messiah. However, in many other instances, he refuses to tell those who ask him if he is the promised Messiah, even commanding some of those he healed to remain quiet about his identity. Uh, why the disparity? Well, you know, I also find it fascinating that Jesus answered the woman at the well very directly while he didn't appear to do so to others. And one reason I think he revealed himself that directly to her is because she was an honest, open seeker. She admitted she knew the Messiah was coming and would declare all things. And that's when Jesus revealed his identity to her. She immediately ran to the village and said to the people, could this be the Messiah? Uh, Jesus didn't answer the religious leaders so directly, in part because he knew their heart. Instead of giving a direct answer, Jesus would answer through his words and his deeds. Uh, they should have recognized him based on the miracles he performed and the messages he delivered. Uh, once they officially rejected him, you know, Matthew 12 describes that, Jesus actually then began speaking in parables to conceal his message from them even further. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is with me, John Geiger, where we're looking at questions that have come in via email. Yours is welcome. Email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Rachel says, at my Bible study of young adults, someone asked the question, is God finished with Israel and replacing Israel with the church? I explained replacement theology and why it's not a correct view as best I could. Do you have any further insight, though, into this topic? And are there any promises that God has yet to fulfill to Israel that do not also apply to the church? Yeah, I think the best answer for replacement theology is to go to the one place in the Bible where the writer specifically talks about the relationship between Israel and the church, and that's in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul does say there that in the current age, uh, the Jewish people as a nation have been broken off from the place of blessing and that we as Gentiles have been grafted in, but he's quick to add two important truths. First, he says it's not a total rejection of the Jewish people, since Jews, and Paul includes himself, are still coming to faith. And then second, Paul adds that the rejection isn't permanent. 
He says a day is going to come when all Israel will be saved, and he ties it into the return of the Messiah. Paul says he can be confident of that because God's gifts and his calling, and there he's referring to the promises uh, that God gave to the physical descendants of Abraham. He says those gifts are irrevocable. Uh, God doesn't renege on his promises, either to the Jewish people or to the church. And by the way, our hope of heaven, it's grounded in the promises God made to us. If God can break his promises to the Jewish people, then what assurance do we have that he won't break his promises that he's made to us? Mm. And that's the point Paul's making, and it's a very strong point for seeing God's promises to Israel still applying to the Jewish people. Now, uh, in terms of other passages, I'd encourage your friend to read Ezekiel 40 to 48 and note all the promises there to Israel that have not yet been fulfilled. Matthew wants to know if Jesus was buried three days and three nights, wouldn't that mean that the crucifixion took place on a Wednesday And therefore, there were two Sabbaths that week? Yeah, when we hear the expression three days and three nights, we think, you know, that's 72 hours. But that's not necessarily how the Jewish people in Jesus' day would have understood it. Now, that can sound like a cop-out, but it's very consistent with what's said later. For example, Matthew 16, 21, Jesus told his disciples he had to go to Jerusalem, be killed, and be raised up on the third day. He doesn't say after the third day which was what he'd have to say if he was referring to a 72-hour period. By the way, he makes that same statement again in Matthew 17 and Matthew 20. In each case, the resurrection said to be on the third day. Now, this understanding of the phrase is also consistent with other gospel accounts. Uh, They say Jesus was taken off the cross and placed in the tomb on the afternoon before the beginning of the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath, Saturday, would begin at sundown. So the crucifixion and burial must have taken place on Friday. Uh, Then we're told it's the first day of the week while it's still dark when the resurrection takes place. So it makes sense if the expression three days and three nights is seen as an idiom or a figure of speech to mean Jesus was in the grave for parts of three days. That is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Here's a question. 1 Samuel 17 verse 54 says, David took the head of Goliath, the giant, back to Jerusalem. Yet Jerusalem was still not in Israel's hands and was named Jebus. How do you explain such apparent slip-ups in the Bible? Well, when it says in 1 Samuel 17 that David brought Goliath's head to Jerusalem, I assume David kept Goliath's head or maybe the skull as a trophy of war and took it with him. When David finally captured Jerusalem, and that's maybe 15 or 20 years after he killed Goliath, he brought Goliath's head with him to the city that would now become his capital. So the final compiler of the account simply jumps to the end of the story and tells the readers the final name of the city where the head ended up. Now, let me share an illustration that I think can explain this. I was born about an hour away from Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania. Now, that's a true statement. But when I was born, that wasn't the name of the town. It was actually named Mock Chunk, which comes from a Native American word for Bear Ridge. But two years after I was born, the town changed its name to Jim Thorpe in honor of the Native American athlete. Now, my point is that when writing after the fact or speaking after the fact, it's okay to use the later name to describe a place, even if that wasn't its name when the event, like my birth, actually happened. Since the compiler of the books of Samuel completed the work just before or just after David's death, He's allowed to insert details that correspond to the name of the city as it was known once David captured it, even if that wasn't its name earlier. 
One more question we'll squeeze in here on the land and the book, and it's another question in 1 Samuel. Chapter 16, Samuel the prophet uses a charade, seemingly at the suggestion of God, and takes a cow to the house of Jesse, pretending to be coming to Bethlehem to sacrifice when he was really coming to anoint David as king. Now, isn't this dishonest? Well, actually, I see wisdom rather than deception or a charade. God did send Samuel from Ramah to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice and hold a sacred feast with the people from the village. So everything Samuel said and did was true. But in concealing the ultimate purpose for his visit, which was to anoint the next king of Israel, Samuel was also displaying God-given wisdom. To reach Bethlehem, Samuel had to travel past Saul's hometown and capital. Samuel was concerned that Saul would hear about his journey and have him killed which does align with everything we know about Saul's character. Right. Now, by instructing Samuel to take along that heifer, God provided a secondary purpose for Samuel's journey that wouldn't raise suspicion. Now, I put this into the category of a person today leaving a light on in his or her house while heading out for the evening. We do that to discourage a thief by giving the impression someone's at home. Is it a charade? Well, maybe it is, but I don't believe it's the same as a deliberate lie. Wisdom is understanding how life works and then living in a way that stays true to God's standards of right and wrong while not acting in a foolish or naive way. And that's what I think Samuel was doing. Great, great questions today. Charlie, thanks for your answers. By the way, yours is always welcome at the land and the book at moody.edu. like celebrations? I do. Parades are cool. Uh, gatherings are great. All kinds of ways to celebrate. But what about a, a celebration that goes on for a day or two or more? Charlie, I think we're about to investigate the longest celebration on record for the nation of Israel. Is that true? Uh, that's right, John. All right, that's your devotional. It's coming up after you and I pause for just a moment and listen to this Holy Land experience. It's a reflection, a testimony from somebody who has traveled to the Holy Land and then brings back their own personal insight to share with us right now. Hi, my name's Rich Woolard, and one thing that I uh, came to realize while I was here was that the Holy Land is much more rugged than I had ever thought about. I had... Uh, it's not as large as I probably thought about it, but the hills are just much steeper and more stone and more rock than I've ever seen in one place in my life. It gives me a, a appreciation for uh, how hard it was for, let's say, Ruth to uh, travel all that way through this rugged country and how, how hard it was for anybody to travel, Christ himself and and everybody that had to walk this land, how difficult it was. Well, Charlie, are you a big celebration guy? Or are you not into celebration so much? Well, I like celebrations, John, and, and I'm looking forward to the ones we're going to be looking at, in fact, not just today, but the next three weeks. Okay, well, take us to celebration number one. All right. Well, you know, for the next three weeks, our devotionals are going to take us to Jerusalem, but not the Jerusalem visited by tourists today. We're heading to a sparse, underpopulated Jerusalem at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. The walls of the city were just rebuilt. Well, actually, that's only partially true. Nehemiah rebuilt the walls around the original city of David and the Temple Mount, but the walls around the western hill still remained nothing more than piles of stone, and even this smaller, more compact Jerusalem looks rather empty. As Nehemiah himself recorded, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. 
and the houses had not yet been rebuilt. A realtor might have described the place as a, quote, blank canvas, ready to be reimagined. But over a century after its fall to Babylon, the city still had mounds of rubble instead of homes. So why have we come to Jerusalem at such a bleak period of its history? We're here to witness the longest celebration on record of Israel's fall festivals. The last verse of Nehemiah 7 and the first two verses of Nehemiah 8 set the time for this gathering. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. Verse 2 tells us that it was the first day of the seventh month. Well, that's Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. But don't envision the Jewish people standing in their version of Times Square waiting for the ball to drop so they can sing Old Lang Syne. Remember, these were distressing times. The city's walls had just been built in spite of tremendous opposition from surrounding enemies. It was a time of external threat and internal poverty and hardship. So why had the people gathered? Well, Moses provides the answer in Leviticus 23. On the first day of the seventh month, you were to have a day of rest, a sacred assembly commemorated with trumpet blasts. The people had gathered this day in Jerusalem because it was the day God had commanded them to assemble, and the temple was the place God had commanded them to meet with him. As far as we know, this might have been the first national celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, since the nation had returned from captivity in Babylon. The Feast of Trumpets is a one-day introduction to a rather full month. It's followed by the Day of Atonement on the 10th day of the month, and then the seven-day celebration of Sukkot, or the Feast of Booths, which starts the 15th day of the month. So nine full days of this month are devoted to these three fall festivals. But what does all this have to do with the book of Nehemiah and our gathering here in Jerusalem? We're here because for the next three weeks, we're going to watch as the remnant from captivity set a world record as they extend these three celebrations into 24 days. But I'm getting ahead of myself, so return with me to that first day of the month and their initial gathering. As the people assembled in the square before the water gate, they told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses. In front of all the men and women who'd assembled, Ezra read aloud from daybreak till noon. People struggle today to pay attention to a 30-minute message on a Sunday morning, so imagine a five-hour reading of the Bible. Ezra stood on a high wooden platform, the original stage or pulpit, if you will, and the people listened attentively to the book of the law. How attentive would you be if someone were to stand up and start reading from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy? Nehemiah records one additional detail. As Ezra stood and unrolled the scroll to read, the people all stood up. The gathering was not just standing room only in terms of a large crowd. The people spontaneously stood to honor the Word of God and then remained standing as it was being read for five hours. And as the people listened to God's Word and His righteous expectations, the reality of what God had said reached into their very souls and they began to weep. Nehemiah himself helped calm the crowd and put the feast into its proper perspective. Go, he announced, and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
the Levites joined in to calm the people and urge them not to grieve, and the people responded. They went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. That sounds like a wonderful ending to a special day, but it's not over. Well, the one-day Feast of Trumpets was over, but the very next day the people returned and gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They wanted to hear more of the Bible, to understand more of what God had written to them. Imagine if at the end of a Sunday service, the congregation were to shout out, can't we stay longer to hear more of what God has said in his word? I'm afraid if that were to happen, we'd end up with a number of pastors in the hospital with heart attacks. The shock would be just too great. We'll continue exploring the longest celebration on record next week, but right now, I want to focus on the lessons we can take away from this amazing Rosh Hashanah, this Feast of Trumpets that turned into an extended reading of God's Word. I see two lessons that are crucial for us today. The first is the importance of hearing and honoring God's Word. Our access to the Bible today is unparalleled in world history. The average household in the United States owns over four copies of the Bible, and the entire Bible is freely available in multiple languages and translations on the internet. But having access to the Bible doesn't mean people are actually reading the Bible. Do you believe the Bible is God's Word? If you do, how much time do you take each day to read what He's written? If you want to honor God, one way to do so is to read His Word. The second lesson we can take away from this account is the importance of responding appropriately to God's Word. Reading God's Word is important, but equally important is responding to what He's written. The people in Nehemiah's day listened to God's Word and then put it into practice in their own lives. They wept and fell on their faces before God, and then they reached out to demonstrate God's compassion to those who were less fortunate. In short, They loved God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then they loved their neighbors as themselves. God's Word needs to move from our head to our heart, and then to our hands and feet. Or, as Jesus said to his disciples in John 13, if you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Charlie, that is a powerful insight into the scene in Nehemiah, a book that I just finished, by the way, in my personal Bible study. I love that scene, though, where you point out the people not only listened, but they stood when the the Word of God was read. Maybe not a bad idea today. It would not be, although uh, I'm not sure if we could get people in the average church to do so, but it is a good reminder that we're to honor both God and His Word. Well, if you're not aware of it, The Land of the Book has a podcast that many, many people are already taking advantage of. If you're not, you're missing out because it's a neat way to share this program with your friends. Not everybody can listen at the scheduled release of this broadcast, or maybe they're not anywhere near a radio station that carries The Land and the Book. But with the podcast, everybody can listen whenever they'd like. And the podcast is available at our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. If it's been a while since you've emailed us, we'd love to hear from you. Let us know how God is using the program in your life. Maybe a quick story of of how uh, the broadcast has impacted your own understanding of Scripture. Maybe helped you with a Sunday school lesson or a sermon. There are a hundred thousand different ways that uh, God might use this broadcast. So thanks for just giving us an insight into uh, how He's doing that in your life. 
with an email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. I'm John Geiger for our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.